Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, 
but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless the reading and hearing of His holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. Well, illness and death are on everyone's minds these days. Every day the media gives us the COVID-19 death count. The local news atlas tells us how many people are sick and dying on the Gulf Coast from this virus. The fear of death has descended upon us like a dark cloud. Well, worldwide, the latest statistics tells us that there have been close to 90,000 deaths to date from this virus. That is a relatively small number when you consider that there are 7.8 billion people on the planet. Now, I don't mean to diminish the seriousness of this virus. We should do all we can to stop the spread of this nasty bug. However, statistically speaking, you are much more likely to die of something else. 15.2 million people died of heart disease or stroke in 2016. 
They were and continue to be the leading causes of death in the world. After those, you have in order pulmonary disease, lower respiratory infections, lung cancer, diabetes, dementia or Alzheimer's, and then road injury. That's your top eight, according to the World Health Health Organization statistics for 2016, which are the latest statistics available. Well, I could go on. There are so many ways to die. It's just not safe in the world. In fact, there were almost 57 million deaths in 2016. But you know where the most dangerous place in the world is? It's in the womb. Those statistics do not include abortion. The World Health Organization keeps those statistics separately. Did you know that there were as many abortions as there were deaths from all causes? Another 57 million. 57 million abortions. Well, perhaps you're thinking, does Tim not know that it is Easter? Why bring us down with all this talk of death on the most joyous of Sundays? Yes, I I realize that no one likes to talk about death. We don't even like to say that someone died. We say someone passed away. But that language is neither biblical or Christian. We use it because we cannot stand the thought of death. But death is inevitable. C.S. Lewis wrote a piece, maybe you've seen it floating around on the internet, It was called On Living in the Atomic Age. He wrote it in 1948 when people were all in a frenzy and frightened about the atomic bomb. He writes this, Do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Yes, there's something new, he says, in that there's another way to die, but death is not new. He says... Believe me, dear sir or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented or before coronavirus ever arrived on the scene. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics. But we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which had already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. If it's not COVID-19, it will inevitably be something else. And these are not thoughts we like to think, especially on Easter Sunday morning. Well, Leo Tolstoy felt this burden of death, and he expressed it like this in his confession. He wrote, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, a question lying in the soul of every person. It was a question without an answer to which one cannot live, as I had found by experience. It was, What will come of what I am doing today or shall do tomorrow? What will come of my life? What is life for? Differently expressed, the question is, why should I live? 
Why hope for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Does my life have any meaning that death cannot destroy? Indeed, it's a good question. Well, the passage before us today refers to death as the last enemy in verse 26. The last enemy is usually the last enemy because that enemy is the one who is most stubborn and difficult to to defeat. Or maybe it's the sneakiest enemy. Either way, Paul stresses that death is an enemy. Death is the enemy of Christ and death is the enemy of people. Death is our enemy because, my friends, one way or another, we are going to die. There are no exceptions. So now that I have brought you down with bad news on Easter Sunday morning and further stirred up your fear, are you ready for some good news? I am so glad that Easter has fallen during this current crisis. It is a perfect time to hear the good news for the first time or to be reminded of it again. That's what Paul brings to the Corinthians, the gospel, which means good news. Look at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You see, the situation in the church at Corinth was that some of the Corinthians in the church were destroying the gospel. They were ripping the good out of the good news. They were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead, according to verse 12. Now, we do not know the specifics of what exactly they were saying. It seems that they were not intending to deny that Jesus rose from the dead. Rather, they were saying that there is no resurrection for everyone else. They were possibly buying into some of the philosophy of the times which emphasized the dualism between spirit, God, which is good, and material things which were considered evil. Why would God give us a a body? That's evil. This led some people to assert that the the resurrection had already occurred. You see that in 2 Timothy 2.18. And what they possibly were saying was that our resurrection is just a spiritual resurrection that happens when you come to faith in Jesus. That there's, there's no resurrection of the body. Whatever the specifics of what they believed, they were destroying the good news of Christ by robbing Him of His victory over death. That is also the victory of all those who belong to Him. They had reduced the good news to good advice for living in the here and now. Kind of like some television preachers who promise your best life now. Or that following Christ is a means to wealth and health. Reducing the gospel to that destroys the gospel. What they're saying is not good news. These are not the answers to our deepest needs and fears, more material possessions. Those folks are not purveyors of the gospel. They're promoting a pyramid scheme with themselves at the top. Well, Paul realizes that the gospel is at stake here. 
he, he realizes the Corinthians are in error, and, and, and he does so with alarm. He, and he comes with the tonic, the pure gospel of Christ, that, as he says in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised up on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to hundreds of people. He reminds them of these things. And we need to be reminded of them as well, particularly in this day when death is so much upon our minds. We need to be reminded of it or minded of it if you haven't ever heard the gospel before. Well, Paul does three, three things here that I want to highlight that I think is important for you to know today concerning the resurrection, concerning the gospel. The first thing he does is Paul establishes the fact of Christ's resurrection. Then Paul inseparably, inseparably ties Christ's resurrection to the resurrection of those who belong to him. And then he explains the nature of the resurrection of those who belong to him. These are my three points. I'm only going to touch on that third one. But let's look first of all at the fact that Paul establishes the fact of Christ's resurrection. Paul gives three brief but compelling evidences of Christ's resurrection. He wants to underline the fact that Christ did rise from the dead. You see this in verses 1 and following. He reminds them of the gospel that I just read. And he, you'll notice there that he says that I deliver to you, in verse 3, as of first importance... But I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the first thing that Paul points out is that the death and resurrection of Christ was predicted in the Scriptures. It's there. It's a fulfillment of something that was promised hundreds of years before. And then he challenges us with the accounts of the eyewitnesses. He says that after Christ rose, he appeared to, to Peter and the disciples and, and to the apostles and, and to over 500 people. And he says, many of whom are alive today. You can go ask them. You can have an eyewitness. You can speak to them and ask them about it. And Paul is encouraging that. I believe. So he shows that it was predicted by Scripture. He shows that there are eyewitnesses who are living that they could check with. And then he talks about the transformation. There's good evidence. The, the difference, the change in life that comes when, the, when a person encounters the risen Christ. He primarily looks at himself and speaks of himself in verse 9. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. No one living in Paul's day was more opposed and more vigilantly opposed to Christ and his followers than Paul was. He persecuted the church of God. He oversaw the putting to death of Christians. But God intervened. On the road to Damascus, he, was, he, was, uh, in, he encountered the living Christ. And his life was changed by God's grace, 
By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not because Paul was so clever. It's not because of good works that he did. It's because of God's grace toward him in Christ. The grace of God was working in him. It's transformed his life. And he also points to the Corinthians. They believe this. This was what was proclaimed to them, Paul said, and this is what they believed. This is what brought them into relationship with Christ. This is what brought them into the church. So he points them to their own experience of Christ. So, the Scriptures testify, eyewitnesses testify, and changed lives testify to the resurrection of Christ. Christ, indeed, Christ has been raised from the dead, as it says in verse 20. Well, the second thing I want you to see is that Paul inseparably ties Christ's resurrection to the resurrection of those who belong to him. He's established, yes, you know that Christ was raised from the dead. And, and he says, look, that is so inseparably tied to your resurrection, you cannot separate them. Look at verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 22 is very important. In, in Adam, it's the key. In Adam all die. In Christ all shall be made alive. Now those phrases, in Adam and in Christ, refer to Adam and Christ's representation of people. The human race has descended from Adam. He, as our representative, failed to keep God's law. He ate the forbidden fruit. He failed the test. He sinned. He broke the covenant God had made with him. He could have lived forever in the Garden of Eden. He could, lived in, he could have lived in that blessed environment. And all he had to do was refrain from eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course he did that. He rebelled against God. And as our representative, he brought death to us because he brought death into the world by his action. We experienced death because he represented us. We are in him, united to him by being born by ordinary generation, as our confession says. Adam's life is our life. Adam's death is the penalty for sin, is our death. What we need is a new representative. You know, we have representatives who, in government who are supposed to represent our interests, and when they vote, that's supposed to be a reflective of what, what the will of the people is. Well, Adam represented us poorly. We need a new representative. We need to put someone else in that office. And Christ is the only one who can fulfill that and save us. Because he did what Adam failed to do. He was sinless. He kept the covenant perfectly. And he represented us, not only in his life, but on the cross. And he paid for our sins there. Paul says that he died for our sins in verse 3. When we receive him as our representative, our head, his perfect life becomes our perfect life. His death for sin becomes ours, and his resurrection from death becomes ours. We are united to him in all these things because we are united to Christ. 
Christ's life, death, and resurrection. They are all ours. You can't take one segment of Christ's life and not apply it to those who are united to Christ by faith. Because by union with Christ, by faith, everything that Christ did, we participate in ourselves. We cannot participate in His death for our sins and not participate in His resurrection. They are inseparable. If Christ rose from the dead, then those united to Him will also rise from the dead. They must, because they are united to Christ. Jesus Christ is the head, and His people are the body of Christ. Where the head goes, the body goes. You can't separate those. Look at verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, Adam, he's using Adam as a representative. The first Adam failed. The second Adam, the one who came to, to represent us in the second place, did everything right for us. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. He came from heaven to save us. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the of the man of heaven. We will be like him. We're not only going to go where he goes, we are going to be like him. He has a glorified body, and his people will also have a glorified body. Now, if there is no resurrection, as these Corinthians were were saying, then that destroys the whole good news. If there's no resurrection, then Christ's work fell short. It means he failed. That's why Paul is so emphatic in verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's pointless. Verse 16 For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The Bible tells us in Romans 4, our assurance of pardon this morning, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification means right with God. Jesus was right with God by his perfect life. And that is why death had no claim on him. He was perfectly obedient in thought, word, and deed, in in the things that he refrained from doing, the wrong things he did not do. And he always did his duty. He always loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He always loved his neighbor as himself. So when he died, death had no claim on him. Why do we die? Why did death enter the world? Death entered the world because of sin, and we die because of sin. We're in bondage to decay, the Bible tells us, and we will die. But because Jesus was sinless, and his his death was for our sin, and it was an act of obedience, even dying for sin and bearing that, 
He was raised up from the dead because death had no claim on him. It would have not been just or right for Jesus to remain in the grave. And when someone puts their faith in him and is united to him by faith, they have that perfect record credited to them. That's what we were talking about in the assurance of parting. Righteousness by faith. Trusting in Christ. Uniting to him by faith. So we must rise again if Jesus rose again. Death has no claim on his people either. Hebrews 2 mentions this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You remember I was talking about death in the beginning and the fear of death and how it can enslave us in life. And see, the Corinthians were taking away the resurrection and so that just puts people back into a fear of death. Paul's correcting that. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore because we will be raised up in glory. And that brings us to the third thing, really briefly. Paul explains the nature of the resurrection of those who belong to him. He says that it is glorious. He talks about seeds and and other types of glorious bodies and so forth, but Presently, we are like a a seed. You have a a seed you plant in the ground and up comes a a beautiful plant or, or a tree even. But it comes from a small, tiny seed. You look out the windows of our church and there's wonderful, beautiful, huge, ancient live oaks. And at certain times of the year, they drop their acorns. And those those acorns are what produce those mighty oaks. Well, our bodies are going to be like mighty oaks compared to right now. They're just acorns, tiny acorns. We can't even fathom what what our bodies will be like. In the kingdom that he talks about, when all enemies are destroyed and, and Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, we will live forever in his kingdom with glorified bodies, imperishable. We will never perish God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should never perish but have eternal life. We have victory. There will be no more death. And that's what Paul says in 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ as He rehearses the gospel and all the blessings that flow to us from Christ. He can't help Himself, but He, gives, he jumps into praise. Thanks, God, for this victory that the Corinthians were trying to rob from Jesus and steal from his people. Are you rejoicing in the gospel today? In the midst of this coronavirus, do you have reason to have an underlying joy knowing that you're in the Lord's hands and he has a future and inheritance for you? Well, two things that I would encourage you to do today. The first is, Receive the gospel and stand in it, as Paul says to the Corinthians in verses 1 and 2. If I, I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you are being saved. You want to be saved, you've got to receive this gospel. The word receive means to welcome. Welcome the gospel. Welcome Christ because Christ is the gospel. He is the good news. The good news is what he did in his life and death and resurrection. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Welcome him in as your Lord and Savior. Recognize that you need forgiveness. Christ died for our sins. Welcome that forgiveness and stand in it. Some of you know what it is to receive Christ. Stand in it. Hold to it. Live in the light of it. Let it inform your life. And remember that those who welcome him into their lives belong to Christ, according to verse 23. You are no longer your own. You belong to him. Calvin addresses this subject very eloquently. We are not our own. Let not our reason nor our will therefore sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. Insofar as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves in all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live for him and die for him. We are God's. Let his wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We are God's. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward him as our only lawful goal. We belong to God. We are not our own. Well, that brings me to the second application, which is simply verse 58. Be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast, firm, immovable, unshakable in your faith and service to the Lord, looking to your imperishable future. Don't live in fear of death. That cripples you. You have a hope. You have an inheritance. Our call to worship this morning speaks of it. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. God is guarding you through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what Paul is doing. He is being steadfast, firm, immovable, unshakable in his faith. Look at verse 30. He says, uh, he says that, that cryptic thing in verse 28 about baptism of the dead. I don't know what that means. Uh, commentators list off 20 to 30 different ways you can understand that verse. In other words, no one knows for sure what that's talking about. But the point is, you wouldn't do something like that. And Paul's not commending it. He says some people do it. He doesn't say he did it. But what he's saying is, why would you do that if there's nothing beyond this life, if you're just food for worms? And he gets the same argument in verse 30 about his own life. Why are we in danger every hour? 
I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, O Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, Paul says, if, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I constantly live in danger as I travel around putting the gospel out, preaching the gospel to people? Why would I do this if there's no future, if there's no resurrection, if there's, there's no kingdom to be had, if there's, if there's nothing beyond this life? If that were the case, if there's no resurrection, Paul says, well, let's just eat and drink and then we die. Go for the gusto, as the old commercial said. Paul says this in second letter to Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In this day when death is in our face, so to speak, maybe we feel like we're under the sentence of death. We are actually under the sentence of death, inevitably. Are we relying not on ourselves, not on our government, not on medicines or whatever? We need to be wise about these things, of course, certainly, and take advantage of, of the things that God has given us to heal ourselves and one another and take care of ourselves. But are, we, but are we relying on God and, and having an eye toward the resurrection of, of the dead? Which frees us from living in fear. Paul was putting himself in harm's way because he knew his labor in the Lord was not in vain. He knew that he was going around spreading the good news of Jesus so other people could enjoy an eternity in this wonderful kingdom of glory. He didn't let the fear of death cause him to to shrink back. He talks about fighting wild animals in Ephesus. No one knows exactly what happened there. I've been to Ephesus, and I've been to the theater where in, uh, in Acts he is, there's a riot going on, and, and he wants to address the people, and they're about to, they would like to tear him apart. It's kind of neat to, to walk amongst those ruins there in the ancient city of Ephesus. You can picture what Paul went through as he walked those streets and and had the opposition of so many. But he knew that his labor in the Lord was not in vain. And the same is true of us. We're not, we're not called to go be missionaries all across the world. But God has a calling on your life. He's very basically given us all a calling to love Him, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. How can we do that? in these days in which we live? How can we remain steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord? Let's not live in fear of death, nor let us live in the fear of sacrificing something for the Lord. Jesus said, What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? We're not out to gain the world. We have a wonderful future that we have secure waiting for us. Entrust yourself to this loving Savior. He will not abandon you. He's paid the price for you, and He's going to bring you home with Him. Even in times of uncertainty, in times of difficulty, He is still with us, teaching us 
to rely not on ourselves, but on Him who raises the dead. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would indeed impress upon us this wonderful truth that you are indeed the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You have risen from the dead and your people will rise too. Lord, we pray that, that we would be free from the fear of death, that we would revel in the victory of the resurrection in our lives and, and that would free us up to serve you and serve others, and to bring glory to you, and to tell other people about this wonderful good news. I pray that it would not be drowned out, but that it would, be, that it would go forth with power, especially during this time of crisis when people are looking for answers, feeling the, 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 the stench of death at their neck. Lord, we pray that the gospel would, would come and bring healing and hope and help to all people. To the lost, we pray. To us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.